Welcome to Stupsin. Stupsin is a series of Dharma talks by Anthony Osler, Dai Chong Osho, the guiding teacher at Poplar Grove Zendo in South Africa, and a former Zen monk. The talks draw from traditional Zen teachings and koans to make them relevant wherever we live and whatever life we lead. If you feel inspired by these teachings and would like to make an offering to support Stupsin, you can go to our website, stupsin.co.za, to find out how. It's just wonderful to uh, be doing this again. Uh, I get so excited uh, before the monthly Zoom that I end up with about three weeks worth of talks, uh, all of which I forget. Uh, but what I wanted to say today is that Zen is useless. And I think we need to explore that with some uh, curiosity and, and good humor. Zen is useless. I find that deeply comforting. It's useless in the way that music is useless, or painting, or dance. Or perhaps uh, the sun setting, uh, a kindness. Uh, of course, uh, using the word useless is is just playing with um, our standard uh, preoccupation with being useful. It's playing with this world of opposites that we inhabit when we think a lot, talk a lot, analyze a lot, remember a lot. When we're trying to manage this world that we find ourselves in, and where we measure ourselves all the time by some kind of absorbed criteria or imagined criteria and and we look at ourselves and and try our best in this world uh, almost as a as, as part of our kind of evolutionary imperative uh, it's part of our survival in a sense but we do so on the basis of a self that is uh, that sees itself as isolated uh, or at least separate in important ways even fundamental ways to the rest of uh, the universe so we see um other people is outside of us and look to strategize our relationships with them. We want to be more 
successful in their eyes. We want to impress them. We want to look like Mr. Universe or Miss World. Uh, yeah. We want to be liked, of course. Um, all of that. But it's essentially a, a kind of fundamental vision that uh, has the world out there and me in here, and me uh, doing my best to manage it. And we even do it internally. So we don't just see the world as object and me as subject, but we even do the same with our uh, inner, what we think of as our inner processes, our psychologies and our psyche. There are experts out there who will who will know what words to use. Uh, useful people all. But we, we see our internal processes as uh, objects to be managed, to be understood, and to be analyzed, and to be absorbed, and to be dealt with uh, in the best way we can. So it's a very heartfelt endeavor that we're in. But it has this particular shape about it that we are the subject uh, managing the world as best we can, as successfully as we can. And of course we're always um, measuring ourselves uh, seeing, am I being more successful? Am I being a failure? Am I? Can I improve here? Can I? Can I surrender a bit there? And so we we manage our lives. But it's a it's a very busy, very busy kind of life, uh, and it's useful uh, in worldly terms. And it's against that backdrop, backdrop that I feel impelled to say that we need to be truly useless. We need to not understand sometimes. We need to do something else. And I think what characterizes Zen practice, uh, at least to me, is that it says, try something else. See if there is another option. And we're usually driven to that question because there's some kind of frustration or longing or sense of disconnect that accompanies all our usefulness and our attempts at understanding and managing. So, we, we are ready sometimes to hear that suggestion. Let's be useless. Let's, let's see what happens if we change the paradigm. Let's see what I am when I'm not thinking about what I am. Let's see what happens 
beyond my assumed world of being the subject in an objective, objectivized world. Well, what's going to happen? Uh, am I willing to give it a try? And the, the Zen, Zen doesn't really offer an orthodoxy as to this is what you'll find and if you don't find it you're a failure because of course that's just straight back into the world of measurement again. But it does say uh, two things. Uh, one is it says find out for yourself which as you will know is an uh, orthodox classical Buddhist uh, instruction from the very earliest days of Indian Buddhism. Yeah, find out for yourself and see what you do. But, but here's, here's the rider. Um, find out what happens when you're not thinking about who you are and what your life is. Because if you do that, you'll only find a thinking answer. See if you can get in touch with that side of yourself. Or see if you can find a side of yourself that appears when you're not uh, thinking about it or trying to manage it or understand it. See what happens. And the other part of that instruction is that uh, to do that, you've really got to take on some kind of discipline uh, that isn't thought-based with all its uh, opinions and positions and opposites and dualities. Is there something that is you fundamentally but that is not just the thinking you. Uh, for me, that's a very enticing prospect because the, the, the thinking me um, often feels knotted up and tight and uh, anxious and fearful and, and overexcitable, whatever. But there is also a kind of orthodoxy about a worldview that has developed in this tradition over the years and which owes its shape really to the long tradition that begins in Taoist China at the time of the Buddha in India and that was absorbed into what we now know as Chan and Zen. And th that is that the essential worldview is that we are simply part of an endlessly transforming universe. 
We are part of it as much as the trees and the birds and the dogs and the change of seasons. Our being born and our life and our dying is just part of the same process of the, of the birds that are being hatched and fed and fly off their nests. Uh, something that happened on our stoop this week. Uh, little rock martins who built a nest there and who left huge droppings on our stoop table. Uh, we put a box under the nest so they could leave their droppings in the box and then the box blew away in the wind so we put a rock in the box. So now we have a box in a rock no, a rock in a box filled with bird droppings. And yesterday morning, uh, the birds flew. Uh, we all got excited, and today we will remove the rock in the box. You might tell that for my birthday I got a set of books written by Dr. Sears. So if there's some absurdity... Uh, useless absurdity that appears might have some connection with that. In any event, the, the prospect is there in the kind of orthodoxy of Zen that when we stop thinking and trying to understand and, and trying to shore up the self that is that sees itself as... Uh, somewhat different to the world at large, that when we do that, we will find that we belong in a, in a fundamental way, that the processes that are me are the same, have the same taste as the processes that govern the, the growing of trees and the dying of trees and the growing of small birds and rocks in boxes and seasons and moods and the clouds in the sky. And for me, without loading what what the what you will discover when you try that. For me, it's, it's, a, it's just a, a wonderful sense when, it, when I can find it, when I stop thinking, of course, when I can find it, when I just feel I'm able to sit back into the armchair of this world. Instead of trying so hard to be a good Zen Buddhist. Uh, the relief uh, is visceral to me. And then when I'm... when that appears, everything that I see feels... Uh, feels like part of me.
uh, there's not a sense of separation uh, and me trying to find something. It's almost the opposite, that this is uh, where I'm really at home in a fundamental way. And that, that it's boundless. As we say in the Heart Sutra every morning, this world of form is boundless. Boundlessness is simply this world of form as we experience it empirically. Not as a theory. Not as a wish. Not even as a strategy for fixing my unhappy me-self. But something more fundamental. And of course, it isn't a picture postcard that one's uh, adopting either, much as the me-self would like it to be comfortable and adorable and kittenish and rockin' a boxy. Uh, because sometimes it's uncomfortable. And we all know that in our lives. Uh, however many air conditioners we buy, uh, it's going to get hot. However many fridges and ice packs we have, it's going to get cold. Because that kind of wish belongs to the world of me managing. And by definition, if we're in that place where we identify with things as they're happening, then the, the sort of reluctance, because it's uncomfortable, uh, also has a, a more realistic ch uh, chance to to look this world in the eye. And then uh, words like useful and useless, of course, uh, that polarity does get resolved in that moment of, uh, of being all of this. And perhaps I should just stop there. It sounds like the, the, the me-self will say this is very mystical language and all of that. But I think one characteristic of our tradition is that we mean it in a very earthy, ordinary way. An embodied way. And no longer just an idea or a hope or a heavenly dream that we mean it, I'm part of this world, meaning that it's just me and the rock and the box, me and the sun uh, shining on the dew, me and the screen in front of me, you and the screen in front of you, in a fundamentally, unassailably real way unassailably ordinary. And sometimes the words we use for that are, I am part of everything. And then the, 
from there we can enter again the world of me managing my world. We can enter again, but we enter now from a different place where the me is not identifying itself with a small corner of this uh, existence, but where it's simply a part of all of this just as everything else is, in a fundamentally equal way. And my worries as, a, as an isolation self, and my concerns, and my dreams, and my lack of confidence, and my longings, also undeniably part of this reality. But when we can see this as part of the wider one world, then the sting is taken out of it. Then we, we have a broader context in which we live and move. And we enjoy more a sense of being useful as well as being useless. Because the, the paradigm has just widened a bit. And again, not because we are spiritual heroes that have attained something that we have uh, as part of our management, our life management. Not that. It's more that we just are finding the whole of our life. And that already just gives us a sense of deep relief. And lest we romanticize this, we know also that sometimes we contract into this sort of limited self-identity and we look at things from there, and sometimes we let it go and we have a wider perspective. And that that process of coming and going is also part of our true home. That we don't stick anywhere. As the sixth patriarch of Chinese Zen, Hui Neng, said, when the mind is dwelling nowhere, enlightenment appears. That's what that's referring to. And again, the anxiety about what will happen when we stop thinking is also a part of it. Everything's part of it. For, for some reason, I am reminded, I'm just going to have a drink, cheers. Ah, useless drink, wonderful. But in, in, in my life, uh, I've sort of been confronted with a number of big sort of social issues, 
Um, one of them in my professional life was the question of the death penalty. And I became very interested in it. And there were arguments on each side. Some people said, no, the death penalty is necessary. I won't give you all the arguments, but felt very strongly that it was important. And then there was a sort of growing group of more liberal-minded lawyers um, who had a, a sort of a human rights uh, angle on them, uh, where I was usually positioned uh, by default, um, who said, no, there's so many reasons why we shouldn't have the death penalty, and so on. And uh, I, I always had a sense that both arguments had some validity. So I would, um, uh, I would uh, not draw conclusions or take sides. I would uh, participate and listen and object and so on, usual. But when I started doing work as a newly arrived advocate in the High Court. My main work was to defend people who were on criminal charges that could attract the death penalty. And, and I remember so strongly one case of a young black man who'd done the most horrific thing, he'd attacked and raped and, and uh, stolen from, from an elderly lady in a small town, elderly white lady in a small town. And it was like a story out of a book, a horror story, of course. It was just the most un... from almost every point of view, unforgivable action. And uh, I, would, I remember people passing me in the street saying, are oh, you defending that, that murderer and that rapist? He deserves to hang. I uh, can't remember what my response was, but uh, I remember feeling it. Perhaps because I secretly thought the same. And he was duly found guilty of murder, rape, and robbery. And he was sentenced to death. And as I sat next to him in the court, when he was being sentenced to death, I had the feeling that I was the only friend he had left. And I think it was true. And that for me changed the, the whole debate about the death penalty. 
similar to what uh, I've been talking about this morning, it felt to me that from a human or social point of view, there were strong arguments in all kinds of direction and that it was a necessary debate for us to have. But suddenly in that moment, beyond the, the realm of human analysis and, and understanding, uh, there's another reality that is also me, that is also him in a very fundamental and separate way. Uh, a world where it's not essentially a world of judgment or measurement or opinion, but just a sense of being right in the belly of this world, taking it as it is, as it presents itself in our experience, moment by moment. And it's in, in those, it's from that perspective that a lot of the um, poetry uh, and writings in Zen and other spiritual traditions come. Uh, like the famous poem, which I won't read now, um, by the late Thich Nhat Hanh. Uh, Please call me by my true names. Because I am everybody. Not as an idea, but because I've, I'm awake in that moment and I see, as he says in the poem, I am the girl on the, the refugee girl, 12-year-old girl who was raped and drowned herself in the sea. I am also the pirate who raped her, whose heart was no, not able to, to open yet. That's where that astounding kind of instinctive uh, depth comes from, comes from the very ordinariness of embracing not just our me life, but the life that we share fundamentally with everybody and everything all the time. And I would like to end with just a little quote also by uh, the late Tay uh, Thich Nhat Hanh, who was a wonderful, wonderful teacher, um, which is fr from another book of his that is perhaps less well known, but I'd like to share that with you. I am life without boundaries. I've never been born and I never died. The wide ocean and the sky with many galaxies all manifests from the basis of my life. Since beginningless time, I have always been free. 
Birth and death are only a door through which we go in and out. Birth and death are only a game of hide and seek. So smile to me and take my hand and wave goodbye. Tomorrow we shall meet again. Or perhaps even before that. We shall always be meeting again at the true source. Always meeting again on the myriad paths of life. So thank you so much for listening, for being here, for joining us, for being uh, an inalienable part of my life and Margie's life and the life of everyone. Even when we forget that that is the case. <laughs>